The philosophers mourn, wishing they were quantum mechanics. They approach the man playing the harmonica, sword unsheathed, ready to do battle with the unquantifiable machinery of the imagination. But in full retreat, they flee a ghost that never had any intention of haunting them. The history major weeps and embraces the void. The universe is a cruel, uncaring void. The key to being happy isn't to search for meaning. It's to just keep yourself busy with unimportant nonsense. And eventually, you'll be dead. Stop fighting it. You're going to be okay. Face the void. Call it a one-way vacation to the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 153 of Embrace the Void, where everyone deserves their own Uncle Iroh. I am your host, Aaron, uh, and this week we are back to some straight-up philosophy. We're going to talk about uh, the importance of filial piety um, and how that works for individuals coming from abusive households. So, content warning, there's going to be a little bit talk of uh, abuse within families, um, so let's get cracking. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. My guest this week is Janelle Shiroshita Vavzniak. Close enough, right? Okay, we we were practicing before the show. Um, She does work on non-Western philosophy uh, and has been recently working on a topic of filial piety and abuse, um, a subject that I think is probably quite universal. Um, So Janelle, would you like to say hi to the void? Greetings, void. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting about this. Uh, we got in touch through a uh, mutual friend, uh, Brian Van Norden, who is wonderful and a giant nerd. And um, I'm excited to nerd out with you as well about some non-Western philosophy. Absolutely. Let's, let's go. <laughs> Can you um, start by giving folks a little sense of your background, your alignment, uh, how you ended up in the philosophy life? Absolutely. So... Um, I'm a quarter Japanese on my father's side. I think the Shiroshita of my last name gives that away. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I went to Grand Valley State University for undergrad. And during that time, I was doing an East Asian studies minor along with Japanese courses. As my university at the time was, well, let's just say I pretty much barely met any other Japanese people. Okay. I was super worried about losing my Japanese. So I decided to minor in East Asian studies because why not? And at the time, I had actually no interest in philosophy. And Mm -hmm. my sophomore year, I had taken an East Asian philosophy 101 course that I won't even lie. I blatantly went to sleep in that class (laughs) and even arrived late. Like this was a a two hour class and I once showed up with like 20 minutes to go. (laughs) Um, I was a terrible student. Um, as, as a teacher, I'm giving you a pass. It's okay. You've clearly oh my gosh, worked through these is, problems. I'm a, I'm a teacher now. I would hate myself. <laughs> I would mm-hmm. hate myself as a student. 
We but, are all um, punished for things we did as students, I think. Oh, absolutely. 100%. <laughs> but so after that course, another required course for the minor was East Asian, Asian literature. And in walked in Pei Minyi. And he is a Confucian scholar and calligrapher. And he mentioned on the first day there's a faculty-led study abroad to China that lasted for three months, and he encouraged us to apply. So I went home that day. I told my parents, I'm going to China. And they said, no, you're not. And I said, yes, I am. And I went to China. <laughs> uh-huh. So I was very filial in telling them, yes, I'm doing it anyway. It's <laughs> a good data point for a discussion, yeah. Uh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, hilariously enough, the other professor besides that was leading this trip was the same East Asian philosophy professor whose classes I had so rudely slept through and blew off. Mm. So I felt pretty embarrassed seeing Galing Shang walk in the room. I was like, oh no. (laughs) (laughs) But hilariously enough, he not only did he forgive me, but there is a running joke between me, him, and Paymin that I'm their daughter. I'm definitely not, but the joke came because a very confused Chinese person asked them, why are all these foreigners with you? And I sarcastically said, I'm their daughter. Mm. And it just kind of took off. And from there, (laughs) as cliche as as it sounds, the study abroad changed my life. Because I think that, you know, learning Chinese philosophy in China and going to these places that were so significant in Chinese history and Chinese um, like m- like monuments, Confucian temples, Taoist temples, this mm-hmm. kind of like woke me up both figuratively and literally, and I just became obsessed with it. <laughs> so I went from somebody who went to sleep <laughs> to it being my life, pretty much. Since we're doing confession time, if it makes you feel any better, I, I slept through part of one of Tal Brewer's graduate classes that he'd allowed me oh to my sit God. in on. So we're not talking a class of 100 people. We're talking me sitting next to him at a table of 10 people. Oh, my God. <laughs> and he forgave me, and it was okay. Um, I'd been, I was doing a lot of work at that moment, is all. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it happens, right? We we grow. Um, so, okay, so you had this, this uh, awakening experience doing this study abroad, and I'm curious yes. where you now land sort of now that you have spent some time studying these different philosophies where are you um are you in the confucian camp or more of a taoist camp or like are you a moist do you feel like you have you identify with any of these particular philosophies i think it's a really interesting question because as somebody who's mixed american and mixed japanese i feel like the american part of me really enjoyed taoism And the Japanese part of me was very interested in Confucianism because I wanted to understand where a lot of Japanese culture that I had learned growing up came from. Mm -hmm. It was interesting to actually see it on paper Mm -hmm. instead of just, you know, growing up with it. And this is how it is. Do Um, Do you feel like Japanese culture sort of took in Confucianism, but not as an explicit kind of as a philosophy as like China? And that's why it was so different. I think so, because, well, one thing is uh, China, I would argue, is not nearly as Confucian Mm -hmm. today as Japan or Korea is Hmm. on a daily basis. Um, A large part of that is because of Mao, 
and I could talk all day about that, but that's not why I'm here. <laughs> but um, and it was actually it was in, very interesting because another one of my classmates who was doing the program with me noticed the same thing when we went to Japan. It was her first time in Japan. She noticed. She was like, "Wow, this is quite a bit more ritualized in Confucian than." Than daily、mm. life in China is, and this is not to say that there is no Confucianism left, because there definitely is. Like Chinese culture, definitely still is in China, but、um, I would definitely argue that because of how Mao himself was very anti-Confucius,、mm-hmm. especially、um, towards the beginning of what would become his later reign of China, Confucius was definitely demonized quite a bit, and so.、Mm-hmm. A lot of what is practiced now—that's Confucian—is mainly at home with the family, and there's a little bit of business, but there's still a huge difference, I would say, in daily life when it comes to, for example, bowing. We have bowing in Japan and Korea. I see it. I saw it sometimes.、Mm-hmm. I can't speak on Korea very much because I wasn't there for very long, but it, it happened.、Um, and of course, there's still. Small things like the oldest person at the table gets the first pick of chicken,、mm-hmm. you know, things like this. <laughs> can you? But, can you, explain, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. You know, could you explain a little why、um, Mao was was against Confucianism and and sort of wanted to uproot、um, Chinese culture from Confucianism in this way? Is it just like it stood in the way、oh, of、boy. his power, or is, it, is that are these questions you don't want to answer because you're afraid of getting banned from traveling no, to China? No, no, no. I, I, no, I don't think so. I think part of this is well, part of this is common knowledge, and part of it is、mm-hmm. definitely against the campaign of, you know, Mao was seventy percent good, thirty percent bad that the government likes to say now. But、mm-hmm. basically, it is actually understandable to a certain extent. But the Opium Wars were a thing, and people blamed the courteousness, so to speak, of Confucian.、Mm-hmm. Ideals, Confucian culture, with how China was so easily manipulated by the West, and so the irony of Mao turning to Russia for、mm-hmm. another Western idea, but again, it depends on who you talk to. Some people would say Russia is Western, some people would say Russia is not Western. But regardless, it was still a foreign concept because you know socialism,、mm-hmm. Confucianism is not inherently a Chinese thing. But that I believe personally was a major reason as to why、um, Confucianism was pretty rejected back then. There were there were posters and all kinds of propaganda made where Confucius was actually an outright villain. It's fascinating.、Mm-hmm. They're very difficult to find. I know that Brian posted one on his Facebook, I believe, last year, and I was like, to me, it was very fascinating, like finally seeing one of these images because they're they're not so common to see nowadays, but they exist. They do definitely exist. That, do you reckon that part of it is connected to our topic today, and that sort of Confucianism promotes filial piety and the kind of state? You know, communism that was being enacted there was trying to get sort of pi- you know piety to be only towards the state and not towards the family in that kind of way, and so they were trying to uproot it for for so they could so they could center more power in the state. Oh, it goes both ways. Um,、mm-hmm. 
But yeah, because it could, also, right, it could also be used to control people further by diving yeah. more into the filial piety ideas. Kind of. Um, I think in one way, it's... This is a very good question. I want to make sure that I phrase it delicately enough. Please don't take away my master's degree, but uh, China. <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, basically, what I would argue is that the the in a, inequality in Chinese society was addressed by Maoism um, when the Communist Party first became a thing. When communism was starting to go into fashion. Um, and you saw a lot of people wearing what would be down called the Mao suits. Mm-hmm. People would ar- people, some people definitely argue that that was the beginning of gender equality, especially in China. Mm. And so removing the social hierarchy when it comes to like the bourgeoisie versus the peasants and whatnot, dismantling Confucianism on that ground mm-hmm. was important. However, now we have Xi Jinping, who is trying to revive Confucianism. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that Xi Jinping's revival of Confucianism is twofold. The first is to, to continue a sense of Chinese cultural identity. Because for a long time, the identity was very much so wrapped in the we are revolutionaries, we mm-hmm. are the people. We are not held by the things that made us weak to Western powers, et cetera, et cetera. But also the fact that, you know, because China has felt very assaulted by Western powers or even Japan, of course, during World War II, that Chinese culture has existed for thousands and thousands of years. And in the past, it was so grand and glorious that China, Korea, Vietnam, people sent their best scholars and whatnot to learn Chinese culture. Mm-hmm. Like the kimono, the kimono, which I'm studying now, is directly related to the Hanfu. Mm-hmm. So the clothing from the Han dynasty. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we, see, we can't ignore this. Right. You see this in the martial arts stuff as well. That I'm, I do Tai Chi and I, you see the Chinese government sort of taking back up Tai Chi as a, a national uh, symbol um, when it had been kind of pushed down as part of a religious act practice for a while and similar Absolutely. and like tying it to Taoist traditions in ways that are <clears throat> more amenable to the state, it seems like. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I would like to actually explore that more in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not so sure what angle to approach it now. Mm-hmm. I'd like to, I'd like to get a hold of, more of Xi Jinping's writings about mm. how he wants to incorporate Confucianism into uh, the Chinese party now. Mm-hmm. I'm keeping a close eye on him, though. <laughs> okay. Well, that's great. Um, so let's let's talk about our main topic here some then. So why is it... So let, let's first let's just explain our terms here. We've talked about filial piety a couple of times here now. What is filial piety? Um, and why is it such a significant concept in certain cultures, especially certain non-Western cultures? Filial piety, in short terms, is honoring one's parents from childhood into, into our adult lives. So it starts when we're very small. And we learn to help our parents out around the house, for example. And it goes into our adult lives when our parents are old and we take care of them as they become unable to 
um, move around the house like they used to, especially like in very old age. We're talking senior citizen era, I guess. Mm -hmm. So Confucianism really stressed his social hierarchy. And it states that the very nature, the very beginning and structure of a harmonious society starts at home and goes outward. And this is a really core Confucian concept that everything that we have when it comes to a harmonious society begins at the home. So Mm -hmm. we start out with the relationship between child and parent, then child and immediate family, like brothers, sisters, anybody Mm -hmm. who lives close by, like your cousins are coming in at that point, your extended family, and then your community, your job, your relationships with your seniors at school, of course, as well. And then finally, local government to the big government. Mm-hmm. Is and there... so since it starts at home, that's where mm-hmm. filial piety goes in. Is there an argument for why we should start from that very agent relative kind of approach and move outward that way? I mean, I know there are lots of different arguments. I'm curious if which one Confucius, if any, puts forward for uh, why this is the right direction to go in when understanding these things. Um, it has to do with Zhen, which means human heartedness. And basically, we learn how to love, according to Confucius, first with our parents. We learn what is love? What does it come from? Like, ideally, ideally, love mm-hmm. starts with a mother and their child. We often talk in many societies about the selflessness of a mother's love that, you know, should ideally be there. Mm-hmm. And according to Confucianism, that's how it goes outward. Because without learning love, we cannot learn humanity to other people. And without humanity to other people, we cannot have a harmonious society. I see. And you mentioned the word shen there, the concept. Is that distinct from ren? And can you maybe define uh, their differences a little bit if they are? It's actually the same thing. That's just okay. how you pronounce it. Manner. Okay, just making sure. Yeah. I'm uh, As we've learned, I'm terrible on pronunciation, so I only get to see no the words most of the time. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So, can you talk a little bit more there about shen? Because I'm, I'm really curious about this as someone who comes from a more analytic Western ethics background. Is this functionally comparable to, like, virtue? Or do you think there are important differences between this and the western idea of virtue well ren means Mm -hmm. it means human hardness like i mentioned and when we talk about ren in english usually with any beginning book who's not written by a new age author and i will (laughs) tangent on that potentially later (laughs) but any any scholar worth their salt writing about the topic in english will probably say, oh, it's one of the core Confucian virtues. So we've already, in our minds, in English, equated the word ren, or mm-hmm. ren, with, um, with virtue. Mm-hmm. So having ren means that one is practicing humaneness towards other human beings, such as being altruistic, uh, having compassion through this core. And mm-hmm. again, like I mentioned um, the first example of Zhen that Confucius argues that we learn comes from parent to a child and child to a parent. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, see- yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Okay. Um, unfortunately, as we're all too aware of in the girdle of the year 2020, not all parents have unconditional love <laughs> and support for their children. Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely want to talk about that and how this plays, how this, uh, 
how we deal with issues of abuse in these kinds um, of models. Uh, it's, just, it's just very interesting to me that this idea of starting in the home in this way makes sense if you do have the kind of habituation model of virtue where you feel like, you know, it's habituated by your relationships to other people, by your interactions with them. And these are the, the relationships where you're going to have the most initial interaction. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so um, that sort of explains, I guess, somewhat why Confucianism places so much uh, emphasis on filial piety. I'm curious, do you think personally that filial piety is a good thing? Um, Do you think that it's um, just good as a form of like a healthy reciprocal relationship? Or is it, is there something more intrinsically valuable going on here? Whew, that is a loaded question. Um, <laughs> I only ask loaded questions. <laughs> I absolutely, I'm living for this. <laughs> All right. So basically, um, if you ask any survivor of parental abuse, chances are they will say that blindly obeying their parents would have contributed to even more harm towards them. And unfortunately, I do think that's a major problem in the surviving Confucian societies of today, whether we're talking Japan, China, etc is that many people including parents especially parents interpret filial piety as obedience that the Mm -hmm. child should obey the parent etc um and that's not actually true there are definitely instances in the analects where confucius himself discusses like when you should not just obey a parent and I'll touch on that a little bit more later. So I would argue that the shallow misconception of feel piety is what's causing so much harm. Hmm. Because we have this idea that I am, I am the parent, you are the child. And as a result of this, you know, to be good means you must be filial to your parents. Because Zhen mm-hmm. is human heartedness. And it basically is the the virtue that we're supposed to obtain or work towards. So they'd say, you know, without this, you are shaming your family. You are going down a path that is less than righteous, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, so, so this we have, yeah. social norm, I think, is causing a lot of problems. Okay, so we have this kind of shallow account of filial piety that does seem harmful and prone to abuse. Do you think that um, you know, would you would you prefer that people adopted a richer version of filial piety because you do think that there is value in this, but it just has to be, you know, in a more uh, healthy, modern, um, you know, properly understanding human psychology kind of way. Very good question. Um, I think the problem is not like a new version per se, mm-hmm. but actually reading the analytics as an adult. Mm. Um, a major, major, major problem for a lot of people who learn about filial piety and Confucianism when it's not in an academic context, not saying that academia is the be all end all of all things, but for most people, if they study Confucius here in the East, it's at school. And if they're studying mm-hmm. it at school, it's not because they're trying to seek to understand what do these concepts mean and how do I apply them to my personal life? It's I'm going to now be forced to translate from classical Chinese into modern Chinese just to show that I know how to read classical Chinese. Mm-hmm. And this is usually done in mainland China, at least in middle school. 
And middle school is a terrible time, in my mm-hmm. opinion, to be really discussing these concepts. I mean, you're 12, 13, maybe 14 years old. You just want to leave. You don't even want to be in a classroom. So you're being forced to read Confucius, Mencius, the Tao, etc. And you are memorizing it, translating it from classical Chinese into modern Chinese and getting ready for the next exam. So you're not actually having the discussions you should be having about what does this mean. You're just Mm -hmm. remembering the main idea and then moving on with your life. Yeah, that doesn't seem like the the ideal. Like like I'm all for getting involved, getting people involved with philosophy earlier. It seems like, um, but not in a kind of rote memorization sort of way, but in a you know, yes. starting to wrestle with these complex trade offs earlier in your life so that you get used to the complexities of things kind of way. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, when it comes to philosophy for children, mm-hmm. um, I would definitely argue that. I agree with you. We should we should be teaching it more. And when it comes to Confucianism, we need to be doing the one thing that seems to be lacking in a lot of East Asian East Asian education. That's asking the question why. Way mm-hmm. too much education here is so focused on memorization, hmm. and you're always studying for the next class or the next exam. And it's not that critical thinking is 100% absent. It's that it's just not the focus because everything is so exam pushed. Like in Japan, in China, you're always focusing on getting into the next big school, getting into university, getting a good job. Mm -hmm. And so having those conversations isn't really happening. And so people talk to each other, they talk to their friends, but then you're only talking to like-minded people. Well, That's interesting. That also plays into something that I was curious about here, which is... You know, one argument it seems like for emphasizing filial piety would be that it provides a kind of method of knowledge conservation where, um, you know, you can still, even if the, even if it happens that you happen to, like, have a parent who happens to be abusive or such, right, you can still gain knowledge of hard-earned, you know, I'm thinking like in a very kind of evolutionary psych kind of way, right? You can still gain hard-earned knowledge from them, picking up valuable skills and things by remaining sort of obedient to them while dealing with uh, those kinds of abuses. Um, I'm not saying that justifies it at all. I'm just thinking about ways in which, right, that like the universe, which I don't think particularly cares about how much people suffer, why it would, you know, why such a view might be effective and adaptive and persist. Um, and it seems also there that the the memorization view that you're describing is, is again, a lot emphasizing the conservation of currently existing knowledge through memorization rather than the innovation of new knowledge through critical thinking. So I'm, I'm curious if you feel like there is kind of a broad narrative that conservation is more important um, in these in these kinds of worldviews. I think it really depends on what we're trying to conserve. Like mm-hmm. um, I mentioned very briefly that I'm studying kimono right now. Um, so I think Japan is a very good example of a country that's trying to retain its traditional cultural values, but is also very much so caught in the how do we become modern ways Mm -hmm. which there's a large misconception anyway that japan is a modern country and has 
uh, robots everywhere and whatnot. Like, I think people would be surprised if I told you how many times people write things down instead of email. Hmm. Or, <laughs> or that, um, you know, some people still use fax machines, which I'm like, you use a fax machine? <laughs> I haven't seen one of those in forever. <laughs> but, um, so Japan is very stuck on tradition when it comes mm-hmm. to things where it, Japan should become more modern. And that's actually an area where I think China is overcoming Japan because China is modernizing almost too quickly last time i was in shanghai they had a facial recognition software mm-hmm. for paying for my food with alipay and i just stepped in front of the camera i didn't hold out anything the camera just took it right from my bank account interesting which was both amazing and terrifying at the exact same time but yeah anyway. yeah that's so, that's unnerving <laughs> yeah definitely so when it comes to conserving tradition um Japan has been definitely trying to make a lot of money off of tourism Mm -hmm. with preserving traditional Japanese culture. But the worst part is a lot of it has been forgotten. The average Japanese person actually does not know how to put on kimono by themselves. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Which I kind of knew that, but it didn't really become a reality for me until I moved here. And so I have started to take a course where I'm becoming licensed in kimono. And it's important. There's a license because for- <laughs> yes, there is a license. I did not know that until last year. Um, so That's, that feels very Confucian to me. <laughs> it is actually, <laughs> and uh, and it's it's actually really interesting because everything in my courses is very ritualized as well. So how mm-hmm. you fold it um, and how you pick it up is very ritualized. You have to do it a certain way and do it, of course, very gracefully because this is kimono and we are elegant in kimono. Mm-hmm. And this is a way of course of preserving culture in a modern world where the kimono would be seen as an inconvenience because it takes much longer to put on kimono than it does to throw on a t-shirt and jeans and go outside. Yeah. This so actually we have a, <laughs> we have a, we have a conflict in these ideas. Yeah, and this raises this is the question that I was um, noodling around with on Twitter because someone was talking about this, and it came up in the context of like ethno nationalism. Okay, so it's like not even a great context to begin with, but like the question was, you know, and this is this is also one that comes up when I talk about um, environmental ethics kinds of stuff is the the, the ethics of preserving of cultures. Do we mm-hmm. have a moral obligation to preserve this traditional Japanese culture? Where Where is the value in preserving it? And how much does that value weigh against potential costs for preserving it, like what you're describing? And of course, this is not oh, something I ask you to prep about, so feel free to beg off. No, no. Um, I think it is. That's not the reason why I'm, I'm doing this. Um... So my goal with the kimono thing is that a lot of Japanese Americans feel very disconnected with their culture. They have an identity of being Japanese American, like we're not the same as as somebody who's white American or Mexican American, etc. But there is a disconnect between your experiences as an American, your experience as a Japanese American, and getting in touch with your Japanese heritage. Mm-hmm. So my goal was to get this license and then help other Japanese Americans or Japanese diaspora in general in, re- in relearning Japanese mm-hmm. culture, so to speak, especially for those who maybe you can't travel to Japan or you can't 
um, spend very long in Japan, long enough to really learn uh, kimono traditional culture because it's mm-hmm. such a it's such a touchstone of our identity as a people. But then, of course, there's the problem with, like I mentioned, with filial piety and child abuse, where we are at a crossroads. We have this identity that's you know honoring our family and family virtues and you know how often do you see somebody say oh i really appreciate a chinese woman or japanese woman because they put the family first mm-hmm. and then dunk on american women and say american women are don't care about family they don't care about this and blah 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 where is mm-hmm. jesus <laughs> you know this kind of mentality and so young people are at this gigantic crossroads where of course we want to preserve our cultural identity, but the cost is potentially giving into nationalism, like especially mm-hmm. seen in China, where Xi Jinping is really pushing Chinese cultural identity and pride in being Chinese without any critical thinking whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And that can be a major issue when preserving culture becomes mixed in with nationalism and fascism. That makes sense. So you mentioned that Confucius actually has a more nuanced take on filial piety than just obeying one's parents, and it sounds like it might be helpful to think about that on both a national level and a personal level. Can you say a little oh, bit absolutely. more about can you say a little bit more about what he says about this sort of more more nuanced distinction and how it might be helpful for us young people trying to understand our filial piety? Absolutely. So, um Confucius himself actually discussed standing up to one's parents in passage 418 of the Analects. He encourages being forthcoming with any issues one has with their parents but also gentle and steadfast. Hmm. Of course, being respectful is really important, but it's also important to, you know, remand your parents in a appropriate way. So for example, there was a rather famous passage in the Analects where a parent wanted to kill his own son. Hmm. And, And rather than remain, the son left. So Confucius stresses that a child should not act in a way that encourages the parent to do something bad. So for example, if someone is feeling like, oh, I need to be filial to my parents, I can't just leave them. Well, if you're in the house and the parent is doing something bad to you, your presence inadvertently encourages the parent to do this negative behavior. So it's okay to leave. Hmm. So by protecting himself and removing himself from his father's reach, the son in the Analects prevented his father from committing a terrible act like murdering his own child mm, yeah, so that makes sense. <laughs> for a western audience this isn't perfect i mean a lot of westerners would say uh well the child is not responsible for the parent's actions if the parent does something bad that's on them yeah that is true but however within confucianism this is an acceptable answer for why it's okay for someone to leave their abusive household because if they yeah. remain then, you know, the parent is going to continue this negative toxic behavior and removing themselves prevents the parent from doing this terrible thing. So filial filial duty otherwise Mm -hmm. would lead the parent into basically having a more humane way of of living. So basically, if you can't reason with the parent or you can't reason with the government, 
mm-hmm. then you can leave it. And so in traditional Confucianism, we have a concept of Tianming, which originally came from uh, documents older than Confucian analects. But mm-hmm. basically, Tianming is the mandate of heaven, mm-hmm. which in short pretty much said that if the people are unhappy if there is discord and society is disharmonious then the people actually have the right to remove leadership from that ruler so that's that's interesting that's not how i usually hear the mandate of heaven described ah yeah i know (laughs) but that's that's that is an emphasis that we actually have a moral responsibility as a people to basically tell the emperor so to speak Mm-hmm. You have lost the mandate of heaven. It is no longer yours. Goodbye. And that, that's how dynasties fall. That's super interesting. When I, you know, like over uh, in Europe, when I think of like the mandate of heaven, I think of the the prior to the social contract view when the sort of the royals were chosen by God in such a way where they had to, you know, continue to, to, to reign for the sake of the well-being of the society. Um, and I didn't realize that, that um, in these other traditions that when they talk about the mandate of heaven, they didn't also mean something roughly equivalent where the idea was, I mean, and, and you see this. So this, this is the other part that's confusing about this, I think, to me is, you know, and again, there's probably just bad training on my part coming from my cultural background, but like, you know, when I watch stuff like I've been watching Kingdom recently, which is a great Korean zombie uh, samurai show. And there's a lot of this like you need to stay, you need to maintain your honor by following orders, you know, to the like the bitter, terrible end kind of stuff. Um, and mm-hmm. right. And so like when I think of you know, dishonoring your family, where we see these, you know, the the classic trope is if you dishonor your family, you have to like kill yourself or you have to run away in a way that is is not not honorable the way that you were just describing that is like the more healthy, you know, if you're in an abusive situation and you can't change it, then try to get yourself out of that abusive situation. So I'm curious, is it that like we have a view of the culture from over here that overplays the the filial piety side in ways that that aren't accurate to the culture or is it that like the culture really is that way a lot of the time but you're suggesting that it should move towards a a more sophisticated confucian model another loaded question woo okay <laughs> um i think it's it really depends because you could argue that a lot of rulers, especially in the past, really gaslit mm-hmm. a lot of their subjects. Um, there was definitely the idea that, you know, this person is the emperor, therefore they have the mandate of heaven, they are the son of heaven, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, so we should obey them. And, you know, I think that a large part of it is, again you know, the one voice that speaks up and says, hey, this is wrong. And there's always that one little voice that will speak up in the name of injustice. And it depends on how many other voices are listening and if it actually can be logically concluded that, yes, this is going against the mandate of heaven. And then in that case, there is then the moral obligation of the people to remove Mm -hmm. the person from power and then take over according to what the ways in which heaven should Mm -hmm. be observed 
within ourselves and with, of course, back to Zhen, human heartedness with other people. Do you think so? You'd ever... Sorry, like this kind of this kind of corruption is half the reason why a lot of people in legend would say that Lao Tzu and Taoism took mm-hmm. one look at the world and was like, screw this, you guys don't know what you're doing, and wrote the Tao Te Ching and then just disappeared into the mountains, mm-hmm. according to popular myth. So um, by confusing ego with heaven is how we've gotten to this point. And that's the same thing with filial piety at home. We mm-hmm. have confused ego with um, honor. Okay. So having that lack of ability to be critical and analyze it through a more logical, realistic lens with a true understanding of the text and discourse, 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 discourse. It's so important to read different opinions. There's so many Confucian scholars out there besides just Confucius himself. There's Mencius, there's mm-hmm. Zhuxi, sure. uh, there's Wang Yangming, etc. Um, reading different Confucians, Neo-Confucians, it's so important to get a larger picture than just memorize the text, forget about it, and try to practice it and see how well you do. Okay, so if the view advocates for, you know, replacing of leaders when they've lost the mandate of heaven, can that apply to families as well? Do I have to replace a, a parental figure if they've lost the mandate of heaven? Or, you know, like, put you know, put in, in like very concrete terms, right? If you have a severely abusive parental figure and like the uh, police won't do anything about it, do you have an obligation to like kill that person to prevent them from continuing to abuse other people um sort of the reverse of the the killing of the child question earlier definitely not kill but remove yourself because killing a parent within confucianism would be seen as a terrible act because it's not righting the wrong the way to right the wrong is to not allow the parent to continue the bad thing now if this is in self-defense that's a completely different story Mm -hmm. but um if in this case like you, the parent is not parenting the way they should if they're being obviously um abusive um you really can't find another parent <laughs> i mean you technically you kind of can but without like formal adoption papers or anything like that the best thing to do is just to move on and to be a better parent yourself or a better member of society the way that your parent should have been and mm-hmm. so that's but that's the big big difficulty that I have to admit that Confucius really did not touch upon himself that much. Um, there was a joke when I was in grad school with a classmate of mine from Canada who had a very messed up home life. He flat out said Confucius could not handle how messed up my family was. Mm-hmm. And you know, to some extent he is correct because there is I don't think there is a solid answer of what do I do other than Like, I can remove myself and make my own way, except to continue to practice Zhen, to continue to have that human-heartedness towards others. Mm -hmm. And that's very, very, very difficult to do when you have been taught at home really toxic behavior and how to have a good relationship. I mean, Mm -hmm. how many of us who had abusive families ended up having very poor marriages or very shaky, toxic friendships even. Like we have, we then have to find another source to learn these things from. But according to Confucius, we would still be, we're still part of society. 
So、mm-hmm. we should do our best to continue to learn these things, even if we can't learn it from our parents.、Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing you would think that individuals still have the possibility to learn those things, even coming back from that. Like, so, so like for example, I ask this because、uh, Aristotle、um, is fairly skeptical that, like, if somebody doesn't get the original positions correct in the beginning, early in their life, like, it's very hard to come back from that. Um, programming wise,、um, and I'm curious、mm-hmm. what what your feelings are about that, like the ability to unlearn、uh, the abuses of filial piety in such a way where you can have those healthy functional relationships again. Well, Confucius himself would argue that the greatest thing you can do, if、mm-hmm. you, if possible, is to continue learning.、Mm-hmm. Like learning was one of the greatest joys that Confucius had. <laughs> so unlearning is still a type of learning. And therefore,、mm-hmm. it's it would be one hundred percent encouraged to to do your best to unlearn anything toxic that you acquired through a shallow misinterpretation of filial piety that was basically obey me or else. Okay. And it would be good then to then reflect, especially if you have children yourself later, like how do I teach my child love? How do I teach my child love in a way that we have a healthy home, that my child can extend this love that I teach them to their peers, to their family members, to others who are different than them, and so on? Because the goal, the ultimate goal of Zhen, is universal love.、Mm-hmm. And so, even if I end up cultivating my own family, if I end up calling friends my family, or Marrying into a happier household, whatever it may be, I have a moral obligation to continue to cultivate that human-heartedness and to continue learning what I can in order to cultivate that as best as possible. Okay, so I think that makes sense, and I'm I'm curious now to try to make things harder by applying it to a challenging case, which is one that you brought up in your paper on filial piety, which is、um, and the moment the cultural moment has passed on this a little bit, but hopefully folks will remember the idea of tiger moms、um, mm-hmm. that did the rounds a little while ago,、um, and I'm curious. First of all, how do we even, you know, how do we even make the case one way or the other whether you know tiger moms are abusive modernizations of this filial, like this narrow view of filial piety, and like should be resisted in that kind of way? How do we separate that out from the objections that this is good for the children and the parents are doing it out of love, and you know people are objecting to it because they come from different cultural backgrounds and race is a part of this? How do you how do you You feel like we can disentangle even the question of is being a tiger mom abusive? Depends on how the tiger mom is operating, so to speak.、Mm-hmm. Um, for example, in China, especially with parents who are financially able to, the amount of lessons that children have is incredible. Like you've got、mm-hmm. English one day, then you have French, then you have violin or piano. Or、uh, then you have this lesson, that lesson, this lesson, that lesson. Plus, you have hours and hours and hours of homework. So、mm-hmm. now there are Chinese parents that I've seen who handle this very well. Like they do have lessons for their children, like violin or other extracurricular activities. But more parents seem to genuinely be listening to their children and what they're interested in.、Um, this was not the case for me growing up. Like. Most of the kids who are my age, their parents were much more strict. 
But I think because these parents, this younger generation remembers what it was like to feel like a literal slave to all these tasks they had to do, that while they want their children to have the brightest future possible, a lot of them are no longer pushing their children quite as hard. Like I had a child uh, that I was tutoring in Shanghai who was learning many, many things, but the parents were spacing them out more. They were giving the, the children a chance to actually be a child, like to go play, mm -hmm. to go have fun. So that is changing. And the way of parenting is slowly changing. But that doesn't mean there aren't people out there who are like the more stereotypical tiger mom and they just sit there and are very strict and forceful with their children to a point where it does become abusive. So mm -hmm. when it comes to filial piety and how does a child tackle that, um, it honestly depends on, I think, teachers quite a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. I've seen teachers stand up for their children, their tutoring, and say, you know, your child is um, doing really great, but maybe your child is tired. And of course, you have to phrase this in a very, very delicate way because mm -hmm. you don't want it to come like a criticism. Because right. you don't want the, the, the mom to turn to the child and say, were you yawning in class? How dare you? That's disrespectful. Like, you don't want that to happen. You want to phrase it in a way that is clearly showing that the child is making very good progress, but perhaps it would be better for the child to either slow down or to... Mm -hmm. um, you know, have it spaced out. Like, for example, there are definitely parents who think that it's a great idea for their two-year-old to learn English. And I'm like, your child cannot even speak Chinese. Why? We, there's no way <laughs> they can learn English through a formal class. Mm -hmm. So convincing the parent that, you know, hey, we can, like, let's handle this in a more fun way with your child so that their child is learning on top of having fun. So a lot of parents are really buying into that idea, which is great. Mm -hmm. And Do furthermore, you... the government is doing something as well. So like for the online teaching classes, which are becoming more popular, uh, there's a limit for time. Most of these lessons are not longer than 30 minutes. And I think that's very important. Yeah, I think all of that definitely makes sense in terms of uh, ways to find a more balanced approach. I'm curious on a sort of cultural analysis level, do you feel like the critiques of Tiger Mom models, for example, um, are in part impacted by things like uh, racism and, and sexism? Do you feel like, um, you know, in, in contrast with the, the neurotic uh, Upper West Side wealthy families that I know who also schedule their children within an inch of their lives or mm -hmm. like, you know, the other kinds of model minorities that you'll see where Jewish mothers expect their children to all become doctors or something, you know, like you see this in a lot of different cultures in different forms. Um, right. And I'm, I'm curious, first of all, is it is it criticized more when it's coming from mothers than fathers, do you think? Um, and is it also criticized more when it's coming from certain cultures? Well, I think it depends on where we're talking. If we're talking in China, it depends on who you're talking to. Um, mm -hmm. but my, my, this is, again, all this is my personal experience. Uh, and I lived in China for seven years, so take what I say with a grain of salt. And if you have a different experience, anyone out there, Go ahead and say so. But um, 
a lot of parents that have been stopping this have been doing so because of the concern on health. Health is a big one. I think health is a bit is the biggest criticism because it's really easy to say to someone else, well, you know, you don't belong to this culture, so you don't have a right to criticize. Or you aren't Chinese, so you don't understand Chinese culture. Something like this. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, there is some truth to that. Like, I am still not Chinese. At the end of the day, I'm not a Chinese person. I am a guest in this culture. Um, everything that I have learned, I have learned through personal study in China and have learned this from listening to Chinese people speak. So any inaccuracies are 100% on me. And of course, please, by all means, do talk to Chinese people. Do go to China. Do study. Mm-hmm. And of course, that extends to Japan, Taiwan, and Korea as well. But I have definitely noticed that um, it's a really easy thing for a lot of people to use as a scapegoat when they don't want to be criticized. They mm. can say something like, and I've had this said to me, like, you don't understand Japan, which A, that's insulting to me because I'm part Japanese. <laughs> and mm. uh, B, it's it's an excuse to not look inward. Mm-hmm. And so then if that's not the excuse, another excuse would be found. For example, you're not a parent, you're a teacher, you don't have your own children, so you don't understand. Mm-hmm. Which then as a teacher, I could then counter, I'm with your child all day. I'm, a, I'm observing their behavior. This is how they're acting in class. This is clearly stressing them out. This is clearly harming them, etc. So either the person will listen or they won't listen. And so I, it's it's so subjective. It really does genuinely depend on who it's coming from. Mothers mm-hmm. are, I think, a little more likely to listen to other mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think parents are more willing to listen to teachers if we can say it in ways that is, I guess, parental language. You do have to change it and cater it to the person. Um, any criticism that I've ever had of anything in China, I had to frame from a Chinese point of view as much as I possibly could. For example, quoting Confucius in Chinese. Mm-hmm. Or um, quoting that actually another help? Chinese person. Yes, actually it did. <laughs> uh-huh. Interesting. Um, because, you know, there is a certain level of respect that I do. I have gotten because... I did study with Chinese people in Chinese. My classes were not in English. And that does award a bit more respect than some random person who's shown up to teach English for a year and actually doesn't understand anything. They're just talking from a very biased Western point of view. So it's important to phrase things that are criticisms in a similar language so that they can think about it on their terms mm-hmm. because otherwise it just it feels like someone is coming from a i know better than you because i am x and this happens a lot when when the west has so many people who look down on china mm-hmm. or who think china is backwards and china is this and that um a great example that i can think of and this is a personal story is i saw once a man being really abusive to his dog Hmm. and i was very upset and he's a really big guy and i'm not going to describe what he was doing to his dog because it was terrible 
And I was in tears and I confronted him in Chinese. I asked him, you know, what are you doing? How can you be doing this? Can't you see your dog is in pain? And he said to me, like, you Westerners always think you know better than Chinese people how to live their lives. And I was stunned. Hmm. I had no idea how to answer that at, at that point in time. Like, because mm-hmm. I was not preparing, mentally prepared at all for that kind of reaction. So it was, it was very, I, I learned then that, yes, what I had just done could definitely be interpreted that way. Because I am definitely a not Chinese person trying to tell a Chinese person uh, how to live their life. Mm-hmm. And what to do with their dog and how to interpret their dog. Because in Western culture, especially in America, we definitely see dogs as like valued family members. This is not to say that Chinese right. people do not. But this particular person definitely did, saw his dog as like property, so to speak. Mm-hmm. What is the and, um, yeah. What is the Mandarin for uh, the devil can quote scripture for his purpose? Oh, my God. Um <laughs> You don't actually have to translate. I'm just, that's what I have in mind when I, when I hear you describing these things is because like, you know, when I talk with uh, Christians, you know, I'll often quote the Bible and sometimes they like that and sometimes they really don't. Um, and, you know, they sometimes will push back on with that view that like you're just twisting the language in such a way to uh, make your point rather than thinking, oh, you you know, you cited a source that I agree with. Uh, maybe I'll, re- you know, seriously reconsider my my views here. Um, yeah, exactly. I see we're running a little... Sh- yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, you don't, you don't want to come off like, you know, I'm looking down on you or I know better about your culture than I than you do because that's not mm-hmm. true. It's just that we have to be able to use the arguments that we have been that we have learned in order to create a better, self-reflective, more socially responsible, harmonious, loving society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... We are running short on time here, and I want to get you to the enlightening round. Before we do that, I'm curious for folks out there who have dealt with abuse and who also struggle with these feelings of, you know, you know, wanting to have a healthy relationship or wanting to have filial piety of some sort um, within their family. Do you have any sort of final thoughts or recommendations, materials that have been helpful to you um, on these kinds of fronts? Um, I definitely recommend actually reading the Analects. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2017, my mentor from undergrad, Payman Ni, he did a new translation of the Analects. It took him many, many, many years to do it. And it's, in my personal point of view, and I'm not just saying this because he is my mentor, but he did a, an excellent, fantastic job, and it includes annotations to some, from somebody who is Chinese and is very familiar with how um, Westerners think and how, of course, English, the English language and the philosophical context nuance works. Um, he did a very good job explaining these concepts and mm-hmm. the, the footnotes are fantastic. So it's called Understanding the Analects. It's by Payman Ni. Um, okay. If you get the hardcover version, it's incredibly expensive. I'm just warning you. The Kindle version is much cheaper. <laughs> Good to but, know. Um, Good safety tip, Um, If you're feeling incredibly brave and you decided that, you know, you really want to tackle this from an academic point of view, my university now offers 
Chinese philosophy MAs and PhD in English. You lucky hmm. jerks! I do everything in Chinese, but now they do offer <laughs> it in in English, and um, it's a fantastic opportunity. If you get the chance, if you feel like it, go ahead and do it. Apply for the government scholarship, get that free money, and go. <laughs> <laughs> Um, more, more proof of the coddling of American minds that we have, we can do it in oh, English absolutely. now. Absolutely, uh-huh. absolutely. But I mean, it's it, it's helpful because most of the professors in that program are Chinese or have studied extensively in China, so you're in good hands if you decide to do that program. Okay. Um, so pl- definitely study the source. Um, please, please, please listen to other Asian Americans, if you are Asian American and you're struggling with this. Um, and remember that quoting Confucius always makes you look good. (laughs) (laughs) And if it actually applies to the argument and it genuinely debunks the argument, go for it. Okay, great. That's, I think it's a great point to land on. So let's, let's move over to our enlightening round. Um, so for folks who aren't familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me if those things are real or not real. Oh, boy. Those are your only two options. You're not allowed to hedge. There is no middle ground here. Um, you do not have to define what the word real means. So you can feel free to hedge as much as you want afterwards. Um, are you ready? Nothing is real. Let's go. Okay, so that was my first question. Is anything real? No. Oh, so (laughs) the whole list is just no's? (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, My final answer, it has to only be yes or no, right? Yeah. Um, You know what? No. Really? Nothing's real? I think it's too difficult because what's real to me may not be real to you. And what is real in one culture may not be real to another culture. So I have to ultimately go with the answer of no. So you wouldn't even say that things are real for you? For me? I mean, ask me in five years if the pain I'm feeling today is real to the pain then. I mean, there are things that I thought were the end of the world for me as a teenager that would be nothing now. Okay. So eh, I'd say no. Okay, so I, I feel at least contractually obligated to read through the list, and if you want to stop me at any point for anything that you actually want to say is real, you just let me know, and otherwise I'm going to make sure that you understand which things you're saying are not real before oh, you absolutely. say... Oh, absolutely. Let's, okay. let's see if I become a big hypocrite. Let's go. <laughs> so, so the external world, right? Colors, phenomenal consciousness, free will, selves or persons, genders races species morality rights knowledge gods or god society money numbers fictional characters holes chairs sandwiches science natural laws beauty causality and time you're saying none of these things are real well i've shot myself in the foot now haven't i all right all right all right all right Things are real. Some of these things are real. Okay, let's find out which of them are real then. Um, is the external world real? Yes. Okay. Are colors real? Mm, yes. <laughs> is phenomenal consciousness real? 
No. Free will? God, I want to say yes, but I'm so terrified. What if the answer is no? <laughs> Selves or persons? Ah, <laughs> <sighs> oh, the Taoist in me wants to say no. Okay. Genders? But the rest of me wants to say yes. Yes, I think gender is real. <laughs> okay. Races? Absolutely. Species? Yes. Morality? I sure hope so. <laughs> Rights? Yes. Knowledge? Yes. God or gods? Ooh. Can I plead the fifth? Nope. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Not oh, boy. Um, I'm not allowed to say in the middle, am I? Nope. Really not oh, real. Oh, no. This is so hard. Um, I know. <laughs> you should have oh stuck with just all no's from the beginning. I, sh- I should have, even if it made me look like a hypocrite. Um, You know what? Yes. Okay. Gods are real. Society. Mm, man-made, but... Mm. You know what? Mm, ah, ah, no, this is so... <laughs> Is society real? Mm. Oh, God. (laughs) You're killing me, Aaron. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I like torturing people. I don't, it's not a good sign. That one is the toughest. Is society real? Mm, I know. Are we, in fact, living in a society? You know what? This has been the worst timeline I've ever seen so far the year yeah. 2020 yeah and it's been so bizarre it has to be real so okay. yes all right society's real is money real no numbers yes fictional characters no holes like a hole in the ground am i allowed to ask you to define a hole nope just a hole in the ground uh, i dug a hole yes. with a with a with a you know Shovel. All right, sure. Yes. Okay. Chairs. No. Sandwiches. <sighs> Why is that one so hard? <laughs> um. Because <laughs> what is a sandwich to me? Mean up? You know what? No, it's not. Okay. Science. Yes. Natural laws. Mm. This one is the the worst. By far the worst. Well, because you keep introducing me to new levels of hell. So, uh... (laughs) (laughs) oh, this may be the best of these that we've had in a while. Oh my god. Because my my brain is thinking of so many different things at once. I know. Natural laws. One way or the other. You'll be judged for all eternity for your answers here. Joy of joy of joys. Um, hmm. <laughs> Thanks couldn't be lower. Yeah. Right. You know what? You know what? No. Not real. Okay. Beauty. Absolutely not real. Causality. Yes. 
Mm, and time. No. Okay, you survived. How do you feel? Like, I not only have I shot myself in the foot, but I've shot myself in every single appendage possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a fun Man, game. You know, that is a, that is a very fun game because it's, it's, it definitely feels like I'm being a hypocrite in various, various ways. And I'm not allowed to say in certain contexts, but mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Ooh, I'm like, you mentioned, you asked me, are holes real? I said yes, because there's a bunch of holes in my foot, my hands. <laughs> I really shot myself this time. It's a very special philosopher hell. Is the way oh, like absolutely. It. It's a great philosopher hell. Uh, <laughs> great. Um, well, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. And I will catch you back uh, watching you get tortured by people on Twitter. Oh, absolutely. Enjoy the enjoy the show and pull pu- up some popcorn. Let me know if you find any of my takes hilarious or whatever. You- <laughs> All right. Thanks very much. You're welcome. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our $20 tier patrons, Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb, blacknonbelievers.com, 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 Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Chad T. And thanks so much to our top tier patrons, the venerable Richard Milhouse Nixon and Dave Maslish. Really, none of this would be possible without you. If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you our bonus book club content. Most importantly, never forget, you are the void and the void is you. 